When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Versus, the podcast that finally settles the little debates that are always a big deal to someone. I'm Coco Khan and this week our someones are two critics, two mats, and most of all two fans who are united in their love of a good sing-song but not on who is the greatest maestro of them all. Matt Hemley is deputy editor of The Stage, the go-to publication for anything going on in the West End and theatre land. It's actually the world's longest running theatre publication and Matt Wolf is London theatre critic for the International New York Times. He's also one of the founders of a new title, Musicals Magazine, and he's currently writing a book about performances of legendary composer Stephen Sondheim, which may come in handy today, because we're debating two of the most important composers to have written for the West End, for Broadway, for Hollywood, and undoubtedly your school play. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber versus Stephen Sondheim. The thing is, a good tune is a good tune, and I think that's what Andrew Lloyd Webber does so well. You get that classic Lloyd Webber moment. Sometimes, sometimes can be a bit samey. You can find me on this. I don't know that I would take the cudgel samey to apply to Sondheim when that's virtually the exact adjective <laughs> that people apply to Lloyd Webber all the time. You think love changes everything except the fact that this song doesn't change throughout two and a half hours of the show. Oof, how dare you. Let's get back to the daggers drawn, Coco. But remember, which maestro tops the bill is up to you, the listeners. After each episode drops, we open up the polls for you to vote on our website. We'll announce the winner in next week's episode. Last week, Simon Jenkins, journalist, author and Guardian columnist, went head to head with financier and former White House Director of Communications, Anthony Scaramucci, to debate the big smoke versus the big apple, London versus New York. And at the time we go to air, the winner is London by a fairly hefty margin, I might add, 72% to 28%. Sorry, New York, we do love you anyway. But before we get into it today... It's time to crunch some facts. It's time for some tasty trivia. It's the most knowledgeably nourishing quick fix in the bargain aisle. It's Coco's Crunch. Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cats. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. School of Rock. Evita. Phantom of the Opera. Aspects of Love. Jesus Christ, superstar. Going through Lloyd Webber's CV is a bit like taking a guided tour of the West End itself. He first emerged in the late 1960s and, well, to be honest, he's never really left. While studying music at Oxford University, it was there that he met his long-term collaborator, Tim Rice. Rice's lyrics have been the fuel on the fire for many of Lloyd Webber's theatrical productions. Lloyd Webber has won an Emmy, Grammys and an Oscar, a few Tony Awards too. He's also collected a few London theatres over his half-century in the business. He owns six, including the London Palladium and the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. Stephen Sondheim, West Side Story, Sweeney Todd, A Little Night Music. The works of New Yorker Stephen Sondheim are inseparable from his country's often complex journey throughout the 20th century. He's credited with adding a bit of grit to musical theatre's clean-cut glamour, and according to none other than Barack Obama, he reinvented the American musical. 
Obama gave Stephen Sondheim the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award in 2015 to add to his collection of Tony Awards, Grammys and an Oscar. More recently, Sondheim has found fresh audiences with West Side Story being re-adapted by Steven Spielberg in 2021. More Stevens means more Oscars. A polymath, Sondheim sadly passed away in late 2021. Still, his music and his legacy live on. Coco's Crunch. So let's start with opening arguments. Matt Hemley, give me three reasons why Andrew Lloyd Webber is the showstopper in this debate. Oh my goodness. I mean, first of all, he's written probably more musicals than any other musical theatre composer. And that includes the amazing Phantom of the Opera, which is a global phenomenon and has been seen by millions of people around the world and continues to run in the West End in its 36th year. I think that's a pretty good reason. I also think that he's introduced a whole swathe of audiences to theatre. I include myself in that. I was uh, 11 years old when I saw Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at the London Palladium, and I've never looked back since. Musical theatre is my passion, and I credit that entirely with Andrew's show. And, and, and of course, the work with Tim Rice in particular, which I think are among his best shows. But I'm not alone in saying that. I know lots of people who have become fans of musical theatre through that. And then I would say that he is also a versatile composer who can turn his hand from sweeping scores such as Phantom of the Opera, Sunset Boulevard, to rock and pop like Starlight Express and Evita, Jesus Christ Superstar. I think they're just among the best musical theatre offerings we have. End of argument. (laughs) I mean, there's strong (laughs) stuff there. Introducing a generation of people into the art form of musicals and creating lifelong fans. Um, Let's get Matt Wolf on here, though. Why has this other Matt got it so wrong? In three reasons why Stephen Sondheim is outperforming Lloyd Webber. Uh, I don't think it's that Matt has got it wrong. It's it's that I was introduced to uh, musical theatre through Stephen Sondheim. So maybe it's just a matter of where you are, how old you are. I'm much older. Uh, kind of the circumstances of one's life and apprenticeship to the art form. I mean, Sweeney Todd, which I think is a bona fide masterpiece, and I don't use that word lightly, that was probably the first Broadway musical that I really became obsessed with. And I saw the original production with Angela Lansbury and Lem Carreyou six times. Well, the second act of it I saw six times because I used to wait at the interval and rush in and see the second act. But I did see it all the way through twice. And I just remember at the time thinking that I couldn't believe there was something of such seriousness uh, that was also a musical, but it was fun as well. I mean, yes, it's about murder and grand guignol, but it has a sense of humor. It's got wit. It's got some genuine showstoppers. And so that got me interested in Sondheim's career as a whole. So I would say item one, the seriousness of his work that musicals could tackle serious subject matters. Uh, two, and this to me is very important because people say that they find his stuff very dry, very cerebral. It's not very emotionally affecting. I don't know what planet they're on because whenever I see almost any of his shows, I'm, I'm reduced to a gibbering wreck by the end. And we can talk more about that later if needed. Uh, and then three, and this is something, of course, I'm thinking about very much at the moment, are the performing opportunities that he gives to people in his shows. Very often, uh, people you wouldn't associate with musicals. So you wouldn't necessarily think of Judy Dench, for instance, as a great musical theater performer. But one of her signature roles was in The Little Night Music at the National in 1996. 
And a song from that, Sun in the Clouds, has become like her big song now that she's approaching 90. She's still singing it. So that to me is amazing. Mm. I'm kind of convinced by both of you, but I am very much available to become one-sided. So let's just keep this going. I want to bring Matt Hemley in on this. Andrew Lloyd Webber, he's had a lot of commercial success, hasn't he? I know that's not quite the, uh, the barometer, but I would love to hear a little bit more about it. I mean, it's a fair point. And when we're talking about versus, you know, Lloyd Webber versus Sondheim, I think we can probably say that commercially, Lloyd Webber is the bigger success because... Without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, his shows, yeah. as we said, we're talking about Phantom running for 36 years in the West End. It's running on Broadway until this week. I, I think it's undisputable that Lloyd Webber has the kind of more commercial power. But that, as you said, though, that doesn't mean it's better work. It just means that he's got the kind of the popular appeal, um, whatever that is. We talked about some of Andrew Lloyd Webber's numbers there. And to actually give you those numbers, his uh, shows have sold more than 330 million tickets in more than 80 countries and more than 125 million of them in the US. He doesn't write the lyrics, though, does he, Matt Hemley? So <laughs> no. that, that is... <laughs> he doesn't, but you, know, but you can see that the positive side of that is, again, like Matt was saying about the kind of people that work through song time, Look at the opportunities Andrew Lloyd Webber's given to people like, look at Tim Rice, you know, starting his career with Tim Rice and what Tim Rice has gone on to. But also what I love about Android Webber is the kind of risks he's prepared to take by working with people who would not normally be associated with musical theatre. Look at the beautiful game, which was about the troubles in Northern Ireland. And he got Ben Elton to write that with him. I don't think I ever at that time imagined Ben Elton would be doing a musical with Android Webber, but he, he's prepared to kind of, he doesn't get stuck with the same kind of people. He, 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 rightly or wrongly, whether it works or not, he takes risks and partnerships that you, that surprise you. And that's what I like about his work. It doesn't always work, but I, I appreciate what he does. And not only that, I think you know he does work with schools, education trusts, because he wants young people to experience musical theatre, so he reaches out in that way. But on a bigger scale, his legacy would be the fact that he owns six of the West End theatres. And he cares for them and loves them and restores them and puts a lot of his own money into these theatres, which are there for the future of the West End, mm. which is a, aside from his catalogue of music, that is an amazing legacy to leave behind. Can I just say also, and this is actually in the program of the Weber camp, so I don't want to confuse things too much, but I do think it is remarkable that this, I, I still pinch myself every time I see it, that if you go to the Theatre Royal Jury Lane where Frozen is, and you go up to the main kind of bar area, there's a side room where his pre-Raphaelite art, like the spillover of his pre-Raphaelite art collection is on view to the public, and I just I, I find that staggering. Wow, that he I has didn't know made that. it. He's made it available to the public. If I had one of the world's great collections of Raphaelite art, I don't know that I would trust the public with <laughs> it. No, that that is true. What he's done with the Theatre Royal Drury Lane and making it a destination in itself, not just to go and see a show, but to go and have a drink or to go and wander around as if it is an art gallery, is amazing. And if you look very carefully, you might see that I think he's had himself painted into one. Of them the pictures yeah. in the theatre. Yes. So keep your eyes yes. open for that. I, I don't know if that, that last bit is in his favour or against him, but I'm glad that you shared it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. You know, Sondheim, he, he did things, of course, early in his career, do both music and lyrics on a West Side Story and Gypsy, uh, both of those shows. He was only the lyricist. But from uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the form in the early 60s onwards, he did both. But in a way, he's not dissimilar to... The eclecticism, Matt, that you're pointing to with Lloyd Webber, because he's had very, Sondheim had very few shows where they were entirely his baby, where it was like, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm very dogmatic about it. He was uh, kind of 
extraordinarily open to suggestion. And you could actually say to him, I think X would be a great idea for something. And he would say yes or no. Interestingly, um, Sunset Boulevard, which was, of course, a great hit for Lord Weber, there had been talk of that being a musical that somehow might do because, you know, it's a famous Billy Wilder film. And someone said at some point to Sondheim, well, why don't you do uh, Sunset Boulevard as a musical? To which he apparently said, well, I'd love to accept it's not really a musical, it's an opera. He thought of it as an opera and he doesn't write opera. And then the torch passed Lloyd Webber. So both these people are very open. There's a wonderful um, YouTube clip, by the way, that uh, listeners might want to look up of the two of them together, of Sondheim and Webber together. And it's really, really sweet. Lest anyone think that you know, they were daggers drawn. They weren't at all. No, they, they so. share the same birthday, don't they, as well? Wow. I love, I love that. <laughs> we'll be back after this. Well, look, that is lovely and touching, and I'm I, I'm very moved by artists collaborating, but this show is called Verses, so we, okay. we will need to put them to fight. Let's get back to that. <laughs> Let's get back to the daggers drawn. So, so, okay. Go, so we, we talked about their range and they both have immense range, but let's get the daggers out. What about their limitations? Isn't there an argument that Andrew Lloyd Webber can't do darkness, that he's saccharine, that it's always glamour? No, that's not true at all. Like, I mean, even though, you know, there is darkness, there's darkness in Phantom of the Opera to some extent. It's quite, it's not, the, it's not exactly a happy story about a disfigured being who's, you know, spurned by everybody but you know like as i said he, he tackled um northern island troubles i know it's in a musical form and i know it wasn't his greatest success but it was a subject that was more serious although it was written with ben elton they they tackled the issues through musical theater and also just want to say like thinking about his collective body of work what other composer has brought us uh, roller skates with starlight express and then a story about Jesus Christ, who would have thought that would work, and then turned their hands to Evita, Ava Peron. I mean, the fact that he is prepared to kind of branch out into all these areas and then do something like School of Rock or Sunset Boulevard, I think he is um, he has a real mix and body to his work. And yet Matt Wolf said to us that he was generic. So perhaps, Matt, you could elaborate on this. Well, it's funny what Matt just said about the range of subject matter, because the thing about Lloyd Webber, which he's admitted, I mean, it's not a deep, dark secret, is that he he sometimes recycles some of his stuff. So there's a great song in Beautiful Game, which does then pop up again in Love Never Dies. And that's interesting because that sort of thing is often used against him, that his stuff is just recycled, whereas it's hard to imagine Sondheim doing that. Yeah, but, you know, the, the thing is, a good tune is a good tune. And if it's wasted in something like The Beautiful Game because it's not going to be done again, why not bring it out to Love Never Dies, even if that's never going to be done again? <laughs> but, um, you know, there is an argument. <laughs> I hate to say it, Matt Wolf, but, yeah. you know, some of us might find Sondheim a little bit worthy, a little bit morose sometimes. Like I, Some of the shows can feel a bit like they go on forever, whereas at least with Android Webber, you get the kind of like the ups and downs are kind of... I, what what Andrew Lobo is brilliant is, is is a really good melody that pulls up the heartstrings. And I, I live for those moments when I go and see a show, even like something like Cinderella. There's that one big power ballad, which I absolutely love. And I think that's what Android Webber does so well. You get that classic Lloyd Webber moment. And I think sometimes, sometimes can be a bit samey. 
You can fight me on this. This is the point, man. But it just feels a bit samey. <laughs> and there is a skill, isn't it? There? there is a skill to 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 doing something that is eternally loved and beloved. I mean, one of the points I wanted to raise with you, uh, Matt Wolf, was an argument that some of Sondheim's lyrics in West Side Story hasn't carried very well to modern times. Are perhaps more culturally sensitive. Uh, is that a weakness, perhaps, or is it bravery at the time? I, I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more on that from you. Nobody was more articulate on that topic than he was. Uh, when the remake of West Side Story, the Spielberg movie, uh, came out a couple of Christmases ago, Sondheim, uh, Flynn Kevins was very much around for that. And he's always said, and he said it with regard to that film, that songs like I Feel Pretty, you know, big number from Marie and West Side Story, doesn't really sit lyrically. I feel pretty witty and gay. Doesn't really sit lyrically uh, in in the mouth of this young Latina woman enmeshed in gang warfare uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's because Sondheim is also a very good critic. But I don't know that I would take the cudgel samey to apply to Sondheim when that's virtually the exact adjective that people apply to Lloyd Webber all the time because, you know, he's the master of the earworm. And, you know, you, you think you show like aspects of love because it is reopening on the West End uh, in May with Michael Ball. And Love Changes Everything is, is so uh, consistently <laughs> played and replayed and reprised and God knows what during that, that you think, Love changes everything except the fact that this song doesn't change throughout two and a half hours of the show. Um, I've just had a note from our producer, Tom, that says, uh, getting a clip will be a musical minefield, but perhaps they could give us a rendition. What do you think? Oh, God, no. <laughs> well, Matt, Matt, Matt can do both. Right, here's Sondheim. <laughs> here's Andrew Lloyd Me, darling. I don't think those uh, are going to convince anyone, but you do have... Um, <laughs> You do have a minute each for your closing pitches. So just to remind the listeners, you get to decide the winner. Uh, we are going to have to wrap up, but they have one more minute to convince you. Let's start with Matt Hemley. Before we throw it out to the masses and their vote, anything you want people to know finally about why Andrew Lloyd Webber is the king of the West End? A minute seems like a very long time. I probably won't need that long because he speaks for himself. But let's to remind you that you know he covers his work covers shows from Joseph and the Amazing Teddy Color Dreamcoat, which is still performed in schools all around the country and abroad which is introducing whole new audiences to theatre, which is massively important. He also has amazing shows like The Phantom of the Opera, Starlight Express, Cats, um, Sunset Boulevard. I just think his range is so broad. And the songs that he creates within them are so iconic. And let's not forget that so many of them launch with cast recordings, uh, recordings before they even hit the stage. So he introduced a kind of whole new way of doing things, getting the songs out to the public before they'd even seen them on theatre which was a really innovative and novel way of doing things and continues, he still continues to do that today with stuff like Bad Cinderella, he's done the same. I just think he is varied, um, he's exciting, he knows how to reach you emotionally and I think he'll continue to surprise you, even like, you know, he's, he's 75 this year and he's going to continue to write musicals, which will be around forever. He has left us a legacy which I don't think anybody is going to be able to dispute. And not only that, he owns theatres in the West End and he gives back to music education because he believes so passionately in the fact that young people should have access to that um, too, which I think is a very compelling argument to vote for. Andrew Roy Webber, vote now. Okay, well, I mean, that's going to be tough to beat, but Matt Wolf, let's give it a go. Last chance to swipe the top spot. Why is Sondheim the diamond in the rough of musical theatre? Well, he's not an entrepreneur. He's he's too 
he's too sort of indrawn for that. However, it's worth pointing out that he has theaters named for him uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, and that's no mean feat. Uh, although I suppose you could say that Lord Weber owns theaters, so if you own them, you don't have to theater name for yourself. But um, I would say, oddly, that Sondheim's achievement is that he's very eclectic and all that that Matt said about Lord Weber. But I would, you know, the line about Sondheim that the Brits throw out all the time is that he's like the Shakespeare musical theater, but that makes him sound like homework. Uh, what I would say about Sondheim is that listening to him makes you feel uh, richer and more deeply connected to being alive, which is actually the title of one of Sondheim's greatest songs. He makes you, he connects you to uh, the intensity of life. And that, I think, is his great legacy upon his death. Well, thank you, Matt Wall. Thank you, Matt Hemley. We will have to leave it there. One more reminder to you listeners, you decide. If you want to vote on whether Andrew Lloyd Webber or Stephen Sondheim won this battle, then click the link in the podcast description. The poll is open and the winner will be announced in next week's episode. You've been listening to Versus, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. I'm your host, Coco Khan. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. The executive producer was Farah Jassat. And thank you for listening. Thank you.